Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfarim Chatter Podcast, and actually another joint edition of the Sfarim Chatter and Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber and Davi Safir. We did this once before and live from Prague, and now, kind of as a follow-up from that episode, we'll be discussing something that came out of that, a little bit of crowdfunding, and Rebjana Minsker, and Yanis Elam, and some other stuff. So thank you, Yehuda, and I'll turn it over to you if you want to do an intro, and to Davi. Great to be with you again, Nachi. Jewish history soundbites and Sfarm chatter get along great. And the glue that holds us together is Davi Safir. So we can't do it without Davi. So all three of us are together. And it's apropos because we have this article that we're, we, we've published in the Mishpacha magazine this week that all three of us did together. And it has a lot to do with um, our previous podcast. So maybe we'll dive right into that. Sounds good. Sounds good. And I, 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 uh, I love that you guys have me on. I just the way I, I work is I don't have my own podcast. I just hijack other people's uh, podcasts, and uh, I think it's a great system. I don't really have to do any work. Just talk a little bit, and uh, to push anything, you know, I just come on to other podcasts. You know, I think I think that uh, straight out of the David Brashevkin playbook, you know, before he started his own. So let's start off. I'll, I'll facilitate here a little bit in the beginning. Let's start off. Let's talk about. So how did we? How did we get into this? And why is Mishpacha Magazine running a piece this week? This Parshas Lechlecha, October. What are we recording this today? The twenty sixth of twenty twenty three. Why? Why are they doing Rabbi Minsker now? Rabbi Karpel of Minsker and Yanis Elam. How did we get there? I don't know. Yehuda, you want to talk about the bio, or Dovey, you want to talk about the crowdfunding? But how did we get here? That we we did this joint F, joint article between the three of us. We, we, um, the, the idea, Davi and I are always doing mere stuff, mere history, um, always cover different angles of it, different aspects of it. And Rebbeinu Minsker is an important piece of that history as one of the major people of the mere. And, um, and, and, uh, and the one, one of the ones who didn't make it, who was unfortunately left behind and killed by the Nazis. He didn't get the visa, uh, to get to Shanghai. So, He's been on our radar for a while. Specifically, um, Davi had been involved in the republication of the Sefer Yainas Elam, which is the Tyre Rebbeinah Minsker, which we'll talk about soon, obviously. The Sefer is what instigated this whole thing. And the publication of the Sefer, you know, republication of a Sefer brings to mind who was the author, what's his story, does the world know about it? And uh, we started to get into it. So... We, we, you know, we, I, I had wanted to do an episode on him at some point anyway. Um, and Davi was already involved in the publication, the republication of the Ainasalem this past summer. I think it was right before Tishabov or so. It, you know, it was apropos for Tishabov. Rabbeinu Minsker was killed by the Nazis. So it's sad and tragic. So it fits into the Tishabov atmosphere. So we did this episode both in, in mentioning the republishing and the, and the story of the mirrors who didn't make it, not specifically Rabbeinus Elam, the Yainus Elam, Rabbeinu Minsker, but, but all of them. And, uh, and that's, that was the history side. I think the Sefer was, uh, was when it was, we, we, we heard about it. I mean, I know for sure now in the Sefer, but even then, when we were told about it, we were told that it's going to have a biography of his in the introduction to the Sefer. So that was very exciting that they're including the historical component in it as well. And that's why I wanted to be involved. And and um, and and republishing of, of a Sefer, any Sefer, is already Nachi's domain. So the history and the Sfarim once again meet. 
Exactly. And I want to say who that's good. Your point again, Yonis Elam. It's not Yonis Elam like everyone in Yeshiva seems to think. Um, but uh, I was just telling someone that goes along with the Biruch Emotions, Yerach Lamayadim. Yerach Lamayadim. Sorry, it's Yerach. Everyone thinks it's Yerach. But uh, whatever. Mispronounced Farm. That's a whole other podcast episode we could do. So let's talk about him. Dovey, I don't know if you want to start Yehuda. Talk about Rabbi Karpel of Rabbi Minsker, who tragically was killed at 32 years old by the Nazis. And we have this, this, this small selection of his Torah that's a really classic in the yeshiva world. That's all that we have from him. And unfortunately, he was tragically killed very young. Ne- never got married. No kids. It's, it, it's you know, the story is really a, a microchasm of a lot of what was going on in Vilna, you know, in 1940. Um, when this Sugihara uh, uh, visa Right and the uh, you know the Japan to you know uh, to uh, fictional uh, Curacao uh, landing right which was never going to happen anyways um, and so much has been been spoken about it um, and the decision of the Mir Yeshiva and really decision led by one of the students in the in the Mir Yeshiva one of the lions of the Yeshiva Oleg Malin um, who, who we profiled at length um, and and that profile during during the research process, I learned a lot about Rabbi Minsker. But what I discovered after the article on Rabbi Malin was published is that Rabbi Minsker is subject is one of the uh, subjects of in, in the yeshivish conspiracy theory world, and, and and the amount of theories that people have about why he didn't travel with the mirror um, is just like w- w- the emails are still coming. Meaning. Even before the, the, this article, I'm sure, will inspire many more creative ideas as to why Revealing and Minsk didn't escape, which you laid out so great, you know, so perfectly in the article. But, you know, people just, I, I don't know where these, you know, ideas come from. And not only are these, are these theories, but people are, are 100% confident they heard it from their, from, from their grandfather, who was a mirror, allegedly, and things like that. And, and a lot of them just don't quite make sense. So, so, um, Getting down to the bottom of it, right? This is this is a subject Yehuda knows as well as anyone, and uh, he's in the middle of a podcast series on the topic. So I think he studied this, you know, as much as anybody really, um, you know, including some of the scholars who who have written about it. Although I will say, and maybe Yehuda disagrees, there has never been a proper scholarly book, or and or or a good film or anything about the Nesat Salah, about the escape of the Mir Yeshiva. And it's really one of the one of the greatest, you know, one of the greatest stories um, of the Holocaust, and one of the one of the one of the really good stories that we have to tell over. I'll never forget that I traveled together with Yehuda. That was actually the first trip that I went over with Yehuda, and maybe Yehuda will say it was it was the first major major tour, right, that he conducted. Um, it was a group of alumni and the people who are involved with the yeshiva at the moment. And I remember being in Sugihara house um, and, and we're there and one of the guys in the trip, Adam Merzoff, pulls out his guitar and he starts playing the song of Shira Lashem. The Shira Lashem, Kigamalaloi. And then you, you look around the room and you see everyone and you, you see one of the Shishiva was with us just bowling. And you realize that the weight that the Mir Yeshiva has on its shoulders is really the only Yeshiva that survived. Um, 99% or 98% of them survived and made it and, and made it out, and it really was the only one. And the way they survived was, quite frankly, with, with chutzpah. Now, I know I'll let Yehuda go into it a bit more, but but it's it's really it's a story. Yeah, you all have heard the story, 
but but the details of the story really have to be fleshed out, like in like a I don't know nine thousand page book or something. I think I agree with you that there's never been a proper book written about it. There's been a lot of books and articles written around it, written close to it, but never a start to finish book, and it's waiting to be written. And we're trying to do our part with the article we wrote on Blade Malin a couple of years ago, with this article that the three of us put together now about Rebena Minsker, about someone who did not make it, who didn't get a visa, with the episode I did this past summer in honor of the republication of the Safer about the mirrors that didn't make it. And now, you know, Jewish History Soundbites is running this multi-part, it's ongoing series of the Great Shanghai Escape, which describes it from A to Z and going through the whole thing, the whole story from start to finish. So if you want to, you know, learn more about the story, recommend you that you, besides for listening to Svarim Chatter, you should also listen to to this series on Jewish History Soundbites. But um, but I I I I I think that what Davi what Davi is saying is about how so much of the story is misunderstood, um, and and perhaps this article that we're writing clarifies some of these points because here we're highlighting, you know, what what in theory you know, was more likely to have happened to the entire yeshiva. Really, everyone should have remained behind, just like everyone else, just the rest of the six million, like Rabina Minsker, and ended up being killed. And we would have talked about the mirror was this yeshiva before the war, and uh, and everyone died al Kiddush Hashem, and isn't that tragic? That's really how historians would have been talking about the mirror today. And instead, we're saying, hey, we have to sit here and explain, like Davi said, all these conspiracy theories about why Rabina Minsker didn't make it, because... Everyone assumes, oh, of course, everyone in the mirror made it. Everyone in the mirror is out. And we almost take this miracle and this incredible escape for granted, so much so that we have to start explaining why Rebena Minsker didn't make it. And you did mention some of the more creative theories that that, that uh, we have. You should read the article that the three of us had. It's in this week's Mishpacha magazine. And I also discussed it a little bit on the podcast last summer. But some of them were just, you know, downright funny. Uh, one of them was... Uh, one of the them was that he was he he was his mother had contacted him and she wanted him home, um, which was like a strange theory because, you know, he had left his home before his bar mitzvah and hadn't seen or heard from his mother presumably in twenty years. Now all of a sudden he's together in the Soviet Union with his mother uh, because Lithuania had been incorporated into the Soviet Union. And all of a sudden, his mother wants him home. Like he's thirty two years old and now he can't go with the yeshiva. It just sounds a bit preposterous, and other ones about his shidduch or or things like that. Oh, we heard another one that was allegedly in the name of Reb David Krunglas. I, I mean, Reb David Krunglas, if he would tell me the story, I would obviously believe him. But um, one of the great Altamirs, the Mashkiach of Ner Yisrael, we just have to figure out exactly what went wrong in the details because there's something that doesn't add up. Uh, something about that he had um, um, all the papers, all the documentation, all the visas, all the exit visas, the transit visas, the end visas, and 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 his passport. He had everything in order. The only thing that he that he ha- that he he also had a train ticket. And allegedly, this this version of the story says he was basically just about to get on the train with all of his documentation that he got just like everyone else, and. Rabbi David needed the train ticket, so he gave him the train ticket and said, hey, you know what, I'll take the next train. And that was, turned out it was the last train, and uh, he couldn't make it out. 
and and that also it, it strains the belief uh you know to to, to to state that he had all the documentation in order when all the evidence suggests otherwise and you know just somehow there was no other train i mean there was plenty of other trains these trains ran all the time this is months before uh barbarossa so it, it, it's just like what what davi was saying that uh we need to clear the air a little bit and try to understand the context a little bit and how it made sense that not only Rabbeinu Minsker, but some other mirrors also didn't make it out. Not everyone got the miracle visas. Some were killed by the Nazis. And maybe that can help us even appreciate the miracle more about the ones who did get out, the ones who were able to somehow get saved, the majority of the yeshiva. I think it's it, it's really, uh, it, it took a bit of, of searching and uh, uh uh, Mrs. Shalamis Berger, who runs the Yeshiva University archives, um, I once spent uh, a few hours there. Um, Yossel Hausman, who uh, our good friend, was with me, um, and we were looking through some of the papers um, in the Vadatzala collection there, and and we found we found uh, requests from from urgent requests to those who had made it to Japan to send tickets for for Vienna Minsker. Now, you know, another one of the stories that's told is that uh, a Polish pass to, to receive a passport, mind you, was a Russian citizen, not a Polish citizen, you know, costed like nine kopecks or something or rubles, and he was only willing to pay up to seven. So he, did, he wasn't able to get one. Um, but then you see that he's trying to get a visa. So he obviously had some kind of a passport. And then in the, in Yehuda and I, this is one of my, my our first archival visits, right? Um, when we went to Yad Vashem that time, if anybody knows where the rest of Dr. Kranzler's papers are, by the way, please let us know because we've we've looked everywhere. But some of what uh, the in 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 Zerach or Haftig, who really is the you know one of the main characters in, in the whole story, in his archive, there's des- you know you see desperate telegrams, please try and save Karpolov, Yona Karpolov. So you really can see that there are there are there are, the sources here are are endless, really, and and, and have I. You know, when I'm ready to do more research into this, I am sure that we can uncover the exact reason as to why it didn't go. But I think that that we're pretty we have it pretty solid in the articles. I don't think we need to really rehash all of the details here. So I want to say that, first of all, yes, read the article and we'll talk about it more. But I'll include that a link in the show's notes. I assume Yehuda Yola as well. And I'll include a link to Yehuda series that he's doing now on the mirrors and the Shanghai Um the rest is it Shanghai or Shanghai? I don't know where Shanghai is. <laughs> Shanghai. Okay. okay. Anyways, regardless, let's talk a little bit about Arvjain. We mentioned him as Karpolov Minsker. We'll talk about his brother being named Walensky, his name. And you mentioned also that he's a Russian. He was from Russia. He's a Russian citizen. And that also has to do with one of the more solid theories that's put forth in the article for why he didn't leave. So let's talk about his background, where he's from, where he's born, his name. I don't know which one you want to do that. We should tell the listeners a little about him, those that aren't super familiar with him. So they should read the article. All the details are there. Um, but this week's Mishpacha magazine. Um, and um, he he grew up in Minsk. That's why he got the appellation Minsker, which is quite common in those days. His name was Karpolov. His father was Rabbi Cheskel Karpolov. Um, his brother um, was ended up being named Velensky, and that had to do with him immigrating to Palestine, which was also common depending on how you got the immigration certificate and how you got out, you very often had to change your name. Name changes were very common at that time anyway because of drafts and and all kinds of stuff. So we shouldn't be too concerned about how his name changed. 
He grows up during World War I when Minsk is a center of refugees, and he ends up um, learning in a yeshiva of Rebbe Chanan Wasserman, which was a branch of Radin, in exile during World War I. He then ends up going to learn by Baruch Berleibovich when he was in Vilna before he moved to Kamenitz. Um, I, I, I sometimes tell groups on trips, is that we call it the Kamenitz Yeshiva. So for most of its history, it was in Slabatka. It was a breakaway from the Alters Yeshiva. For a bunch of years, it was in exile in Kremenchung in Ukraine. It also spent a bunch of years in Vilna until 1926. And then for the last 13 years of its existence, it was in Kamenitz. But it's the Kamenitz Yeshiva. That's, 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 how, it's, that's how it's known. So he learns there before it's in Kamenitz. Uh, so he's a Talmud of Baruch Ber, and then ends up in the Mir. And he becomes one of the main people there, very close to the Biruchim, and a uh, superstar, something like unique, the way people described him. He was something special. He wasn't just another guy in the yeshiva. He was part of the elite and uh, was very, very well respected. He was a Talmud of the Briskarov as well while he was in the Mir, which was also common for Bachram in the Mir at that time. And he gains renown. You know, he gains renown as one of the great superstars of the entire Litvisha yeshiva world. And really the rest of the story is in the article. So read the article. I don't want to rehash. I just wanted to go over in brief over here. And so after the war, kind of, you know, we'll just skip ahead to the Sefer a little bit for now. After where the Sefer is published, later on his brother publishes it, as we mentioned, his brother Walensky's brother gets out, his brother publishes the Sefer, puts together the Tyra. And uh, there's, there's, I think, two more editions done. They add some material. There's some Hispadim set on him, some Tyra from his Rebbeim, from his friends. And then Eventually, but the thing about the Sefer is, for those that are familiar with the Sefer, you know, most Yeshiva Light are, it's, it was this old font, it's been an, in and out of print for years, it's available, it's not available, I remember as Yeshiva, it came back available in a red cover, it used to be a black cover, and everyone ran to buy it, and then it went back out of print, um, there was no index at all, and it's on random topics that he, that he learned, that he spoke about, it's, no, it's not like a specific on a certain Masechta, or even on Rambam, it's just like, you know, topics that they had, from him, that they put together, so it's hard to use. And so, with that, W, maybe you want to take over over here. We're talking about the crowdfunding, where we spoke about on the podcast that we did in Prague about the Michelle Migra, which, by the way, hasn't happened yet, but maybe Mr. Will, and how his foreign mart fell into disrepair and should be redone. And, you know, W mentioned at that point, you know, we crowdfunding, and maybe that would be something we can go about. There's all these racing campaigns, charity campaigns, whatever platform, and everyone's raising it's everything. Funny. Uh, it's funny, actually, because I, I was actually on a, uh, a Zoom earlier today with some of the people from charity who graciously offered to conduct this campaign free of charge when they heard, when they heard about it. And they, I just thought that crowdfunding could be a, a great platform. It's being used for everything else today. Um, Kickstarter was like the first you know, thing. Then I moved GoFundMe and then the From World like adopted it, like, you know, became it's become part of our religion, um, crowdfunding. Um, and, you know hundreds of millions of dollars are raised annually that way. And I figured, you know, why not let, why not try it for Svarum? And I had an opportunity this summer to be in Deal, New Jersey. Uh, once again, as part of something for the mirror. And I, I met a wonderful young rabbi whose name was Rabbi David Haver. And his nephew, whose, whose name is Pinchas or Phil Shelby, um, had been working on this safer. And he said, you know, you're a mirror guy, you're into this. Um, he knew I was into history. He's into history. He says, you know, do you know anybody would be interested in sponsoring the Safer? And a light went off in my head and I said, you know what? 
We talked about the crowdfunding thing. We never really got the Shalom Igra thing started. It was a, a large project. It was, you know, there was a lot involved in that. This seems pretty easy. Let's test it. And, and when I say test it, I didn't think that we would post a page and less than three days later, we got $25,000 raised for more than 100 donors. And I think we probably, if we would have had to have raised double, maybe we probably could have raised it too. And people were, were so responsive to the idea. People, people were so gracious about it. Um, nobody asked you know, for really anything in exchange. Um, and, and it shows that this is something I think that, that is, you know, definitely we can bring, you know, don't worry. We're not going to have like on our statuses every single day another uh, crowdfunding campaign for a safer. Um, but I think this is something that could be done more often. And, and uh, you know, uh, suggestions are coming forth. And, you know, I think that we're pretty close to, to, to getting another one started in, in, in the near future. So so stay tuned on that. Um, I wanted to just bring up, I think that that uh, I think this this story, we, we, we can move on to something else here. But uh, once we were on this topic, first of all, today's of Nassim Svi Finkel, the Mira Shiva's yard site. And it, it brought to mind uh, uh, a person who's very close to Nelson Svi Finkel, Yechil Ben Sion Fischoff, Benny, best known as Benny Fischoff. Um, and I had the opportunity to uh, to get a sneak pre a uh, sneak preview into uh, something that's pretty rare in the firm world, in the art school world, which is a memoir. Um, there, I, I can think of too many memoirs that were written by non masculum and uh, I think that I just want to get into two of them quickly. Um, and, and first is this one that's coming out next week that's called Biahava with Love, you know, the, which is really uh, a Benny Fischoff story. Benny Fischoff was was a, a boy from Lodge, a Gerer Chassid, who just latched on to Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin um, and, and traveled with them to Shanghai and was, you know, it was very close to the Amshinova Rebbe, who was, you know, who was, who was really, I, I guess, almost like the Rosh Yeshiva of the Chabad and Chachmei Lublin group. He was definitely a spiritual leader, the rabbi, and he became a businessman while in Shanghai. And this, this is a story that you don't usually hear told. You hear about the guys in, in the mirror and time to and and but but you don't really hear about this other thing, which is a, a young boy who comes there and you know he had, a, he had a working pass. He was able to get in and out of the ghetto as he wanted. And and in the book, he you know poignantly he points out um, that uh, you know because of that pass, you know, kept him out of the ghetto. And he says maybe later on in life he has regrets. He says maybe if I hadn't had that pass, you know, I would have been sitting and learning and I would have gained more Torah knowledge. But ultimately, he becomes a, a leader. And, uh, you know, after he comes to America, he becomes a leader in a good Israel in America, a very influential uh, philanthropist, somebody who accomplished a lot of great things and was a, just a wonderful person. Um, and uh, our our Mishpacha colleague, Sroli Besser, spent uh, many, many uh, hours and hours sitting with him and recording his memories for him and, and adds, uh, you know, footnotes and a little bit of detail here and there, you know, adds some color. But uh, overall, it's, you know, it's one of, I love memoirs, probably my favorite genre of books. And it, it, it's got to be up there with one of the more fascinating ones I've ever read. I think it's coming out next week. I think it's available for pre-order on the article website. And it's absolutely, you know, fascinating. I really, really enjoyed reading it. And directly related to our topic of both Svarim books and Shanghai and all that. So it's, it fits right in. And there's footnotes in our school book. Look at that. So, Dov, what was the other memoir that you wanted to talk about? 
So I think it's sh- something. What did you say? You wanted to mention the Sheikhid one? Yes, yes. This is a book from Academic Studies Press, which is also extremely rare. Um, it's one of the also like like it says the introduction really harps on this point that it's really you know one of the only definitely one of the, maybe the first couple of Hasidish memoirs um, ever written. Um, it's written. It was written in Yiddish in the you know in the early 20th century, but it really goes back to when when uh, the author who was a sheikhet in Crimea. Um, you know, it, it, I'm in the middle of the book, you know, and it's it's full of color. And what's fascinating about it is, and I think this is, was pointed out as well in the translator's introduction, is that this is a fellow who really writes about his experiences and does not really, he's not a worldly person. He doesn't write about current events, doesn't write about what's going on in the world. And he's clearly writing it as he goes along. It's not like somebody who sat at the end of their life and, and penned memories of what happened or did not happen 70 years earlier, which you know, which often the problem with these books, he definitely was writing it throughout his life. And and what inspired him to write at a time when nobody, you know, this was unheard of in that world. Um, and and honestly, it's flowery. It's written really nicely. You know, it, it, unfortunately, it's it's full of, of tragedy and and and. But you meet, you know, Sechemed. Um, he meets several Hasidic uh, rebbes that that you know that he, he writes about. But it's really it's a fascinating book and it's one of a kind. Um, and uh, also, it's I have to point out, you know, sometimes we discuss academic books and then people they want to purchase them and they go online and it's like one hundred and sixty dollars. You get paid out over the course of two years or something. Um, but uh, Academic Studies Press has done something great, which I see some of the Indiana University Press is doing, and Nachi probably knows which ones do this, which ones don't, but they offer a paperback option for 25 bucks, um, which, you know, is, is by book standards, obviously. It's nice. It's a good price. They also go on sale from time to time, but uh, it's really a book that's it's, it's pure, um, it's colorful, um, and it's something that, you know, it's like... Shalom Aleichem on steroids, you know, like writing a memoir. It's really, you, you get, you, you just really get a real glimpse into what life was like at that time. In a place, Crimea, in that region, really, where you have to realize at some point they were under Muslim control. I mean, it's really something, it's something I really did not know much about. Um, and it, it's a to- totally different take on the shtetl life, you know, with all the usual stuff as well, in a very real way. Yeah, so I also mentioned it was put out together with Turo University Press. Turo publishes through Academic Studies Press. And like you were saying, it is available in a hardcover, but they also did a paperback, which is $25. I'll put the link in the show's notes via Amazon. You could order it. I don't know, Yehuda, if you do such a thing, but I'll do it. And anyone interested can check it out. I got a copy as well. There's like a long introduction. I'm hoping to do a podcast with the translator editor, but that's for when I get a chance to read it. Um, and W, just in general, memoirs are really fascinating, you know. I'll, I'll tease here. You who didn't mention his series, so I'll plug myself a little here. Also, I'm doing two for you know. I have some I've done on the Magal Tovi Lechida, but you know, going and I have an episode forthcoming on Sefer Chazionis, Rucham Vital's sometimes controversial um, autobiography kind of story diary. That's also a memoir, as well as I'll be doing David Ruveni, which came out in English translation, which is fascinating. In the forthcoming series I'm doing on the Asar Sashvatim, and then I'm actually working on. T- uh, now a series, I may as well say, on memoir type thing, on Jewish travelers and travelogues throughout the centuries, which there's tons of these. I mean, you go back to Benjamin of Tudela and Sachev Regensburg, Brother Valtesis, and you talk about Ravadji Bartunur, the Rav Gorsi Strong writes letters, and you have the Chida, obviously, and you have many others. I mean, countless others that write these kind of, but there's not 
tons of them. And they're really kind of colorful and fascinating and really interesting to see like what life was like and what they perceived things like, not just reading a, you know, a biography or someone writing about what they saw. You're seeing actually what they envisioned when they, and especially a lot of the travelers, you see them going from place to place. But uh, a lot of these are really interesting. So, um, Dave, I didn't see the one from art school, though. That sounds very interesting. I didn't see it. It's coming yeah, out. It's, so, like, it's coming out in a week. Um, but I think they just posted it for pre-order on the website. Um, so I figured it was worth mentioning. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but, you know, who knows me and the memoirs? But, you know, memoirs are a place to get information. Um, but you obviously have to be careful sometimes when using them as sources because... We all know, I mean, I hardly remember what happened yesterday, let alone many, many years ago. Sometimes memoirs tend to be difficult, you know, when trying to figure out, decipher things and, and to learn about stories. Because you'll see two memoirs that, that repeat the same story in totally different fashions. Dovey, can you mention, I got a copy of the book after you told me about it, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. The Moshe Lidder Zinger that Koran published. It's also oh, a memoir. wow. That, that book... Um, it was a bit eerie, actually. Uh, I read the book um, on a Friday night, um, and I decided that after reading this book, which was um, really, you called me off guard here, so I don't even remember the name of the author. Maybe uh, you, you, Krause. You, Moshe Krause? Is that his name? Moshe Krause, who was a chazan who, as a child, already traveled across Europe, was a, was a prodigy, and really spent his life as a chazan. Um, you know, he writes about his, his travails during the Holocaust. Um, but really, his whole life story and does not leave out any details. You know the hardships he suffered, um, and and I, I, I after Shabbos I googled his name and I said I got to write an article about this person. He is fascinating, and I saw he had passed away three days earlier. Um, he lived past a hundred, I think. Um, but that, that's also one of those memoirs which I think is like must read if you if you enjoy if you enjoy that uh, genre. Yehuda, what about you? Any books, any memoirs, anything any uh, thing you read recently or anything you want to talk about? Um, the, the, uh, the, um, no. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. I'm putting you on the spot over here. Come I have not me. read any memoirs recently, period. It's not like I've read any that, uh, that that ha, that are you know more or less interesting, um, but memoirs like Davi said are an invaluable resource on one hand, and on the other hand, you have to take these things with a grain of salt or a few grains of salt to be careful what the memoirist is saying. Yeah, listen, I don't read novels. The last novel I read was a John Grisham book. I think as like a eleven or twelve year old, and I stopped reading novels, which is really what got me into history in the first place. Um, but I think that, you know, for those of us who don't read novels, reading memoirs is a bit of a filler, um, you know, for that kind of stuff. Um, definitely a, a lot of the memoirs you read are, are sometimes have a lot of that uh, novel type material. Um, but uh, Yehuda tends to read, uh, you know, more textbook type of stuff um, that he enjoys. So, you know, we're, we're all different. And, and uh, yeah, memoirs are pleasuries. They're not necessarily a place. You have to fill yourself with information on the subject, but definitely good, you know, good to fill in some blanks here and there. Um, and, uh, you know, just just going into a used bookstore, um, you know, especially the, the Jewish used bookstores that have cropped up the uh, Capital Forum, that chain. Right. You can find real gems, sometimes the unpublished memoirs that some someone 
puts that end up there and you find stuff there that you just you never imagined and i have a, a large collection of these type of books once in a while i'll post on twitter a, a recommendation i used to do it more often i don't anymore i kind of lost track um in the mess of books in my house um of what i read and what i don't read um but uh definitely definitely love the memoirs i just got to what used bookstore i got from israel mizrahi our friend a he it was published by some weird press in Israel. Neged, he told me it's like an outfit of like, it's associated with Kedem, the auction house. And they printed it about a year or two ago. I don't think it sold, sold, sold. I don't think it's even sold anywhere. It's like a beautiful um, edition of a written in old Yiddish, a travelogue by somebody in 17, I think 21 or 23. And he was a bucher and he travels around. He goes through Italy and he goes through Europe and, he's, and he writes down, it's all his, I think he writes it later, but it's like his recollection of what the community is like and what his travels were like. Um, and really cool. So I just got, they did some real color pictures in there and like there's some really fancy illustrations in it. So talk about something interesting. That's like a memoir when you're talking about memoirs that are interesting. Yeah. I think also with everything going on in the world today, and we mentioned Yehuda's research, I think it's important. Um, Yehuda mentioned to me, and I think he shared this with his, his listeners that he, one of his, one of, uh, somebody who, who he, has followed and, and gone to the lectures and, and, and really utilized his research is, is one of the hostages being held by Hamas at the moment. Maybe you could just talk about him for a minute and share his name. And Yeah. So, so it's, it's, I mean, we're going through an interesting time as the Jewish people as a whole and in Israel in particular, where I am, the, the, this guy, Alex Danzig, he is an elder man uh, in his mid seventies, um, uh, Holocaust historian and researcher, I got to know him in Yad Vashem. Uh, went to several of his lectures, um, and he lives in Kibbutz near Oz, um, which is one of those kibbutzim that the massacre and many hostages were taken. So he's presumed, you know, un- it's understood that he's one of the hostages there, um, and uh, very sad and tragic and. What I found to be even more sad and tragic, obviously there can't be anything more sad and tragic than a 75-year-old man being taken hostage for no reason other than the fact that he's a Jew. But I found to be, I guess, more ironic about it was that the focus of his research throughout his career in in Yad Vashem, I've heard from him on the topic a few times, is Polish-Jewish relations. So the idea was that he was researching the neighborly relations Uh, both the good and the bad, the positive and the negative, over the centuries throughout Polish-Jewish history. Um, And here he's kidnapped by, I guess, I mean, it's different different than neighbors in Poland. It's neighbors across the border in Gaza. It's not exactly in your, uh, but it's nearby. And, you know, the the horror of that that taking place uh, just, you know, caught me by that in in the context of, 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 of his research. I liked it that you know, like you mentioned, we mentioned before about academia and memoirs, and there's the, we, we sometimes yearn for the simplicity. He would always emphasize to us in his lectures, I'm just a kibbutznik, I'm not an academic. Uh, I'm just a simple kibbutznik. He, t- he used to say that a lot. Um, so um, we hope the simple kibbutznik is, gets back home safely, along with all the other hostages, uh, and uh, and we can end this terrible, challenging time that we're in right now. Yeah, I, I think that, that uh, you, know, w- you know, people love to talk about unparalleled times for the Jewish people. Um, and, and, you know, during our lifetimes, Baruch Hashem, 
you know, we, we haven't had to see too many of those, but this is certainly among them. And this is something that uh, the state of Israel has never seen. Um, I also, first days of Sukkot, um, and right before then I was reading also another new book, which definitely I could recommend, and perhaps Yehuda, um, Yehuda Nachi, you guys should read it too, called 18 Days in October, which is a, a new book in the Yom Kippur War that they, a landsman of mine from Lawrence, Uri Kaufman, who's a real estate professional, uh, spent 20 years researching and really, really does amazing research um, and, and reveals several new, really new facts about the Yom Kippur War. Um, and and the, the, the parallels you see in certain places over there, right? And after reading the book, you know, I said, wow, I never realized, you know, how bad it was and the situation Israel was. Even though I read some of the other books in the Yom Kippur War, but how scary it was. And then for something like this to happen right after that, you know, as someone who really looks to history often you know, as a way to, to put things into context, um, it really, you know, this, 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 this is really, I guess, truly unparalleled. Yeah. Unless we go, you're right, you go back to the Holocaust. Holocaust educators were always busy saying, this is not like the Holocaust. You have to be very careful when using Holocaust imagery and, and, and comparisons and all of a sudden, we're turning around and saying, "Hey, this is this is like the Holocaust." So that's pretty scary that we're confronting a reality in the 21st century that we're saying, "Wow, this is just like the Holocaust." Um, I also say have been starting to think, um, and I get, it's also related to what we've been talking about: or being a Minsker and, and people getting killed in the Holocaust and things like that, because he was killed in the Slabatka pogrom. Um, uh, so the the, uh, the we as Jewish Holocaust educators from community, the Ad Vashem community, the Israeli community, have very much been focused on the victim narrative because we want to focus on the Jewish story, on the victim narrative and what's their perspective and how did they feel and how did they go through it and experience it. And the last few weeks I've been doing some soul searching and I've been thinking maybe we've been negligent. Maybe we've been neglecting the story of the perpetrators. Maybe we haven't understood properly and educated and told the story of the perpetrators enough. And perhaps that's apropos that we should start as Holocaust educators, we should start talking about the role of perpetrators and not be completely focused on the victims in light of, you know, what we saw the last few weeks. Well, could you flesh that out a drop more? The, the, the idea that, that we, we ask, how is this humanly possible? How can people do such a things? Um, how can they go ahead and, and perpetrate such a mass murder, such a massacre, such sadism and cruelty? Um, how could human beings do such a thing? And there's a ton of research that has gone into explaining these phenomena. And it's not only Nazi racial ideology. That's one component. It's not only anti-Semitism. That's another component. It's not only some regular human traits like social conformity and not wanting to be different and being part of a crowd and getting swept up with with these type of things. It's a combination of factors. And there's books have been written about it. And psychologists have what to say about it, the famous Milgram and Phillips and Bardo prison experiment and, and the wave and, and all kinds of things like that. But it's also historians have things to say about it. Christopher Browning um, has written, you know, the, the book Ordinary Men, which Many have responded to and many have written other works about it to explain who the perpetrators were and why they did what they did. And I think that if in light of what we saw, meaning we were kind of like horrified, how is it possible for human beings to do it? And you even see on social media, they're not human, they're monsters, they're animals, only animals would do such a thing. 
Well, the truth is it's human beings who did it. And, and we have to understand um, in order to be able to prevent this, we don't have to only understand the story of the victims. We also have to understand um, how people are capable of becoming perpetrators so we can better be prepared for for ideologies and for human behaviors to you know be you know make make sure in 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 a preventative sense to make sure that things like this um, don't happen. Yeah, I also think it's not fair to animals to compare these people to animals because <laughs> you know, animals yes. are, are you know didn't do anything to be compared you know to, to, to these kind of you know whatever you call them. But uh, yeah, listen, I I I. I, I uh, I, I try and avoid any, you know, any uh, politics and stuff, and, and I certainly try and avoid the way the mess, the Western media, for the most part, portrays these people. Um, which, which definitely, 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 they can use some, spend some time soul searching and doing some research and trying to understand the overall story um, in the Middle East, and Israel, and speci- Israel specifically, because you see the lack of knowledge in general that they have. Just, I mean. Read a couple of books about about you know the the, the conflict and, and the long history and and you know Hebron massacre and how things like this happened pre-state and you can go back to, to, to the beginning, but uh, you know I'll leave that to, to the political uh, talking heads. Yeah, <laughs> that uh, politics, like you're saying, we see we you know we heard or we saw you know the WhatsApp audio of the Hamas guy you know calling his father in Gaza you know cheering that he killed. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, this, you know, it's horrible when you see and you hear all the things that happen there, um, as well as, I mean, everything that's that's been going on. And, you know, listen, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not in law school anymore to see what's been going on in the American universities and the anti-Semitism that's been occurring. And like you say, David, just the lack of understanding or knowledge for anything that you really see throughout, you know, the United States a lot. You should be yeah. thankful you're not in law school, even without this. Right. Uh, I, oh, I've been. Sure. Yeah, I've been telling people this is why I didn't go to Harvard or Cooper Union or Stanford. <laughs> it's just because of of events like this. But honestly, uh, I have spent time on Stanford's campus and on Harvard's campus, and and and, and you know the, the libraries are are supposed to be places of of refuge, um, for your mind. You know, it shouldn't be a place where Jews have to go to hide. Um, and in general, what's happening on university campuses, not so different than what happened, right, in, in, the, in the late 30s. Uh, a lot of parallels, unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, scary places. And I do wonder, you know, if, if certain uh, Jew, uh, you know, Orthodox high schools will stop printing ads bragging that their, their, their graduates are going to Harvard and Yale and, and Stanford and places like this. Because maybe, maybe we should stop using that as a barometer for success. And I understand the need for higher education. I'm not one to uh, definitely, but we have wonderful places like Turo and Yeshiva University. Um, and perhaps those places, you know, all the Jewish money, now that that's being pulled from these Ivy League schools, perhaps that could go to further enhance uh, those institutions as well as our Yeshiva's um, day schools um, and provide an even better education to our kids. But that's just my opinion, and I guess I'm entitled to that. But um, listen, um, it's scary times out there for everyone, um, and we're davening, you know, that that obviously all those who are in harm's way stay safe, and all those who are in captivity are brought home safe and 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 very very quickly because it's really this is just hard to to, to deal with as as a Jew. 
Amen. And, you know, all this has parallels, unfortunately, to the Rebjani Minska story, which is why we decided to really do this podcast today because of the article. So, again, check out Mishpacha and read it, you know, about Rebjani, about his, un, you know, his, his life. I was not going to say his unfortunate life, but the unfortunate tragic ending to his life. And you can read Yehuda's uh, terrific biography of him and, you know, woven together the story that we put together. Uh, but the three of us with, you know, Davi's research and I also did writing on the Safer a little bit and um you can see a little bit you know hear a little bit about the safer and again i didn't talk much about the safer by the way we didn't talk because it's a lumdish safer again on various topics there's now an index you can check it out there's some other pieces they took from other places but you'll read it up in the article the safer is available in stores anyone interested i've gotten people asking i posted on the new was farm chatter whatsapp community and on twitter people, where can i get it i can enter sales back and forth. we did it wow so people are definitely excited about that Davi. so it's great that uh, the crowdfunding worked out for hashem and Hopefully, listeners will stay tuned for more crowdfunding uh, opportunities for Svarim. And uh, I'll, like I said, I'll link to the to the article, Mishpacha article. But definitely, everyone should uh, everyone hearing this before this job is should pick up the Mishpacha and read the article. Thank you, Nachi. So this Jewish history soundbite Svarim Shatter podcast with Davi Safir worked out very nicely again. Maybe we'll do it again, again. If it's so enjoyable, we'll do it again in the future. Yeah, we need feedback on that, and then we need a name, guys, if you want that. I don't know, maybe it should split open its own podcast, or even if it's hosted on each of our podcasts, respectively, it needs like a name, or a caption that we're calling it. It's not live from anywhere this time. It's not like live from Prague, you know? <laughs> I think two podcasters and a clown works well. <laughs> That's All right, I guess we'll hear what everyone has to say and what everyone thinks. But uh, thank you, Huda. Thank you, Davi. And, uh, Thank you, Nafi.